in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Paul reminded the disciples in Ephesus, we'll put the text up here for you. He reminded those disciples that you are no longer strangers and aliens, these Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Look at this next phrase. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Hmm. The apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Amen. Now, I think most of us know who the apostles were, right? You've got a pretty good idea in your mind of who the apostles were. But who were these prophets that Paul links with the apostles in verse 20? Who, who were they? Some suggest that Paul's talking there about the Old Testament prophets who predicted the coming of Christ. But only a few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul goes back to this same pairing. Take a look. This is verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. When you read this, Paul tells the Ephesian believers, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, uh, as it has now been revealed now to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, wait a minute. Paul is not referring to prophets in other generations. That seems to be pretty clear from that. He's talking about those who are serving right now alongside of the apostles. So at the time when Paul was writing this, they were serving. But again, who were these prophets? And how should we think about their ministry? What does it mean for us today, individually and our ministry together? Turn over to Acts chapter 21 from our Bible reading plan last week. Acts 21. Head over there in your Bible app. In Acts 21, this is after his third missionary journey, as we traditionally call those trips. Uh, after Paul's third missionary journey throughout Asia Minor and Greece, we find that the Apostle Paul, according to verse 3 of Acts 21, is in, he finds himself in the coastal city of Tyre. Back in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Luke told us that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, northern Greece, and Achaia, southern Greece, and go to Jerusalem. So just a couple chapters back, Paul had this resolve to go to Jerusalem. It said resolved in the spirit. And that's exactly where he and his team are continuing to head in this passage. So they're in Tyre, which today is in southern Lebanon. That's where they currently are. Listen to what happens next, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 21. On the next day, we, notice the we, that tells us Luke was with them at this point, and you can, you can tell when Luke was with them because he'll start using the we, that he was actually part of those journeys. He saw as an eyewitness what had happened. But Luke says, together, right, we departed from Tyre and came to Caesarea. That's right down the Mediterranean coast, about 55 miles, if you just follow the coastline, 55 miles to the south 
of Tyre, you find Caesarea. It says that they came to Caesarea. We came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, Acts chapter 6. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Talk about a fascinating scene, right? Talk about an incredibly emotional scene. Just imagine yourself there. Imagine the interaction, this exchange, what was happening here with a prophet giving a prophecy, with people weeping, crying, pleading with Paul, appealing to Paul, urging Paul not to go. Paul's heart breaking as he hears this. But him clearly uttering his resolve in the end. There is no doubt that the believers who knew Paul loved Paul, didn't they? To know Paul was to love Paul. No, that's not true. <laughs> a lot of people knew Paul. They didn't love him at all. But these believers, they knew Paul and they loved Paul. That comes through loud and clear in this passage. But think for a moment about the interplay here between three parts of this story. Ready? The interplay between Agabus and his prophecy, Paul's friends and their appeals, and Paul and his resolve. Make sense? Those three? Agabus and his prophecy... Paul's friends and their appeals, and Paul and his resolve. So first, let me introduce you to Agabus and his prophecy. What's interesting is, this isn't the first time we've met Agabus. If that name sounds familiar to you, you are not crazy. right? We have heard this name before. He actually first appears in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. This is what we read in, cha in chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, the Roman emperor named Claudius. So... In the book of Acts, if we pull back, you know, and look at the entire book and think about the entire book, in addition to the prophets, plural, that we just heard about in Acts 11.27, we discover three people specifically named as prophets in this book. Agabus, Judas, 
and Silas. Not Judas, not the Judas you're thinking of. <laughs> he's not even a character in this book, right? He's, he's dead before this book takes place. But Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, is how they clarify that in the book of Acts. Agabus, Judas, and Silas. And Silas is the same Silas who accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. He was, in fact, you may not have known this, a prophet. He was a prophet. We also learned a couple weeks ago in chapter 13, verse 1, that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, is what Luke told us there. So that is about the extent of what the book of Acts tells us about those who held the office of prophet. I'm emphasizing that because there's a distinction, I believe. Those who held, who were called prophets, who held that office of prophet that you could pair up with the apostles, just as we saw the apostle Paul doing in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3, even again in Ephesians chapter 4. I didn't show you that verse, but we know that verse well if you go back and look at it. So this office of prophets... What, what other kind of prophecy do we find apart from the office of a prophet in the book of Acts? Well, in addition to those who held that office, we discovered, along with Paul in chapter 19, verse 6, see if you remember this story, there were, way up in Asia Minor, we don't know how these dudes got there, <laughs> but there were disciples of John the Baptist like up by Ephesus, which is like Western Turkey today. Somehow these guys were up there just doing their thing. And when Paul runs into them, when he discovers them up there, they, he, know, he realizes they had not yet received Christ. They had not yet received the Spirit of God. And when they did, Luke tells us they what? Spoke in tongues and prophesied. Spoken tongues and prophesied. Of course, we just heard in our main text, chapter 21, the one you have open in front of you. We heard in 21, verse 6, that Philip the Evangelist, do you know who he is? About 20 years before this, he shared Christ with an Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him there along the side of the road. This is him. Oh man, he's an old man now. 20 years later, he's got, he's got four daughters. That's what's happened to Philip in this time. He has four daughters, and what do we learn about them? That they also prophesied. Were they prophetesses? We don't know. They're not called that. Right? That is a word in the New Testament, but they're not called that. But it says that they prophesied. So even with Agabus showing up there, you know that like this little powwow, time of fellowship in Caesarea with the people of God, the believers in Jesus, there's a lot of prophetic decor in this room, right? There's four daughters who, are, who prophesy. Here comes Agabus from Jerusalem. So that's the setting that we have here. I think it's important to point out this as well when we're talking about Acts and prophecy. In the very first sermon in Acts, delivered by who? Peter. You guys know that. You were just hesitating. The very first sermon, Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost. There you go. Now you've got your confidence. You're ready. The day of Pentecost, he, Peter, described that day being the fulfillment or what was being fulfilled were words from the Old Testament prophet of Joel. Take a look. Here they are. 
And in the last days, said Peter, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Ah. What does the word mean in Greek? Pra, out, forth. Fetes means to speak. It means just to speak forth. To speak forth the word of God. Prophetes. To speak forth the word of God. So they shall prophesy. But Agabus, this is the man right here. He's the clearest example we really have in the book of Acts of a functioning New Testament prophet. He, he really is the best. It's really only his prophecies, at least snippets of them, that have been preserved in Holy Scripture, that are, that are there. And in both chapter 11 and chapter 1, he announces two examples of what we call predictive prophecy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, before these things actually happen in real time, Agabus reveals two events that really will take place in the near future. By the power of God, by that revelation from God, he speaks of what is to be. Chapter 11, he talks about a famine like we saw. And then chapter 22 here, the capture, or chapter 21, the capture and imprisonment of Paul. In this way, Agabus is like an Old Testament Hebrew prophet. Even the way in this chapter, what does he do? He doesn't just come and say, here's the prophecy and see you later and head out the door. He takes Paul's belt off his robe and he wraps himself up with it. That is so Old Testament Hebrew prophet. <laughs> That's what those guys did. Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They often acted out certain things. They were signs in the way that they acted to visually also confirm that something was going to happen. Agabus is functioning in the exact same way here. So these prophets, if there's any confusion about it, no, these prophets really were mouthpieces for the Holy Spirit. There was no error or whatever in their prophecies. They were, in fact, divinely directed and they were speaking the word of the lord that's what we have here that's all the evidence points to that fact about these new testament prophets in fact the only other possible prophetic word that we find in the book of acts i haven't mentioned yet is in acts 13 verse 2 you remember what i said about acts 13 it's in antioch and that's where paul and barnabas are it said that there were teachers and prophets in that church in antioch do you remember what says next when they're gathered together praying and fasting? The Holy Spirit said. Now, it does not say the Holy Spirit said through this particular prophet, but it seems the kind of convergence of all those ideas there that one of those prophets in Antioch was the one who says, thus says the Holy Spirit. What did he say? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them it's not on my notes here but i even realized too that if silas was with paul on his second missionary journey then that was the journey where they tried to go places and it said the spirit of jesus would not let us go there and we tried to go here but the spirit of jesus told us to go over here right how might that message have come might have come through silas a prophet of god who was on that trip with paul doesn't say that specifically, but there's, that's, I think it's a reasonable conjecture to say that's how Silas might have functioned as well on that trip. 
So in some cases, God's guidance may have been crystal clear in a prophetic announcement, just like we heard in Acts 13. Set apart Paul and Barnabas. I have something to do. I'm going to send them out. This is the work. Crystal clear. But at other times, declarations of what was to be, what was to come, were not necessarily connected to explicit instructions about what to do, about doing this or that when the predicted event took place. What was the first prophecy given by Agabus, chapter 11? There would be a famine over the whole world. Were there any other instructions given? No. No, there weren't. That, that, well, scripture doesn't record them. It simply says that the believers said, you know what we need to do in light of that? We need to send a gift down to our poorer brothers and sisters in Judea because if that's true, they're going to get hit the hardest. And we need to stand with them. You see, God didn't tell them to send that down there, to send a gift down there. He simply said, this is what's going to happen. And he let the Spirit of God work among them and their love for Christ and their love for the brothers and sisters. And that led them in light of the word of God to say, we want to help them. We need to help them. What would we do, way of grace, if a prophet were to stand up in our midst and say, you know, in less than a year, there'll be a a horrible economic downturn that will sink this entire area. What would we do? How would we prepare for that? How would we want to come alongside of our community to be a blessing? How would we help our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe, who are struggling if we knew that was the case? This is the kind of thing that we have in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's clear, crystal clear directions. Other times, a declaration of what was to come. But in its most generic form, just like Old Testament prophecy. And I say that because when you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, it's not always foretelling of what is to come. Sometimes it's simply pleading with God's people to live as God's people. Sometimes the prophet is simply encouraging the listener to love God, to turn back from their sin. You know those passages, don't you? You hear the heart of the prophet when they say that. Prophecy is not always something of like, oh, this is going to happen after this. And this person's going to come. And this is going to, I'm going to bring judgment. No, sometimes it's just the prophet speaking to them and saying, return to the Lord. He will heal us. Come back. And in many times, I think we get that sense. Here's a great verse in the New Testament Sorry, New Testament prophecy from the book of Acts, simply building up believers. Take a look here. Judas and Silas, it says this in 1532, Acts 1532. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets. Oh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. They came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it says their function, specifically, they were prophets. And what was the result of them being there? They were encouraging and strengthening the brothers. There's no mention that they're giving some kind of supernatural, predictive foretelling of something that was going to happen down the road. Right? doesn't say that. It just simply said they were 
building up the church. That lines up beautifully with 1 Corinthians 14, 3, when Paul writes this, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Holy Spirit-inspired encouragement through human mouthpiece. I dare say, brothers and sisters, we should be seeing that every week with one another. But second, think about this. Second, think about Paul's friends and their appeals. Remember the interplay between Agabus and his prophecy, Paul's friends and their appeals, and Paul and his resolve. Think about the friends here and their appeals in light of that prophecy from Agabus. When they learn that Paul will be captured in Jerusalem, they urge him to stay as far away from that city as possible. Don't go, they tell him. Do not go. Now, this is not the first time in this chapter Paul has heard such warnings. Look back at verse 4 of this chapter. Verse 4 takes place in that coastal city to the north, Tyre. It says that he spent a week there. Paul was there with his team for a week. It tells us that while he was staying with fellow believers in Tyre, it says through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So even before he arrives at Caesarea, even before Agabus shows up, there's already people telling him, don't go. Now it says in the Spirit, so we get the sense that there's some kind of, these, some of these people have some prophetic sense something is going to happen, and they are responding the same way as Paul's traveling companions. They are saying, no, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. And verse 13 indicates that Paul's companions there in Caesarea weren't simply suggesting that Paul change his plans. They didn't hear Agabus' prophecy and say, wow, that doesn't sound good, Paul. What do you think? Let's just kind of role play and do some scenarios here. What if you don't go and we just go, you know, back to Tyre or we take a boat from Joppa and we head over to Cyprus. Sound good? They're not doing that. It says, in fact, that they are weeping. Paul indicates that, doesn't it? They were weeping. They were so broken over this idea that Paul would be taken from them and that he might suffer and be killed. Think about that for a moment, though. They are weeping in light of the prophetic word but think about, the, think about what happens. They hear what will happen according to the word of God from a prophet of God. But apparently they want to understand it as some kind of warning. Now, Agabus, I know what you said, dude. I know what you said, but maybe that's just like you're letting us know what could happen if Paul doesn't get his act together and get out of here, like he doesn't wise up and leave. No, they're hearing, they're hearing, just like the famine that was predicted, this is going to happen. This will happen. But they're saying, well, maybe it's like a suggestion that it's a warning giving you a chance to get out of here, Paul. Isn't that interesting, the way that they're interpreting this? And that leads us to a third point focused on Paul and his resolve. Did you hear Paul in verse 13? 
it's clear he's struggling in some way. What are you doing, he says, weeping and breaking my heart. He is hurting because he's seeing them hurting about him. They're in pain in light of what was said about him. So he's in pain. But in the same breath, he confirms his absolute commitment to what God has planned for him. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Weeks before this, he revealed this same resolve to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He had said the same thing to them. Right? Just flip back a page or whatever to Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Or look back on your opposite page. Acts 20, 22. Look what he told them. And now, behold, brothers, Ephesian elders, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Note that. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. He just knows that he needs to be there. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. He does know this, though, that the Holy Spirit testifies to him regularly. Present tense. Testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what he knows about his ministry. Remember what God told Ananias, who helped restore Paul? when he was blinded on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Ananias didn't want to go at first. And he says, no, 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 no. You need to go. You need to pray for him. He's already seen in a vision that a man named Ananias comes and prays for him and restores his sight. But you need to go because he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he has to suffer for my namesake. That wasn't lost on Paul. He knew that. The other interesting tidbit, this is just a little kind of, not in the notes, a little factoid. When you look at the word bound, deo in Greek, the place where it's used most, now remember, Agabus said, this man will be bound, handed over to the Jews in Jerusalem. The place where it's used most is in the repeated descriptions of what Saul was going to do to Christians. Any Christians he found, he would bind them and take them to Jerusalem. Wow, what a change. Now he's the one who will be bound in Jerusalem. He's the one who will be handed over. Right? This is not lost on Paul. He understands what God's doing here. He understands what, what God is showing him and teaching him through all of this. Look what Paul adds if you're still in chapter 20, verse 23, when he told the Ephesian elders, I know I'm going to Jerusalem, I don't know what awaits me there. But he adds this in verse 23, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. If there was any value to Paul's life, it was only going to be found in finishing the work Jesus had given him. He would die for that. 
He wasn't going to protect his life for any other reason. To be spent for Christ. To be poured out as an offering for the one who poured himself out for Paul while Paul was still his enemy. That would be perfect consummation for Paul. That's what he desired. And he drives that home to the Ephesian elders. You see, Paul's friends here in Acts 21, they want to understand this prophetic word, the word of the prophet, as some kind of warning that provided Paul with an opportunity to avoid imprisonments and afflictions. But Paul heard that prophetic word as divine confirmation of the Spirit's ongoing testimony to him about finishing the course about completing his ministry why do you think it was agabus a prophet who's already been named why did god use him because it was clear that he truly was a prophet of god we already have confirmation right it's not like some guy named rick just shows up hey paul yeah you're going to jerusalem bro you're gonna be bound and Paul might go, uh, who are you again? I'm Rick from Jerusalem, right? No, this is Agabus, who had been there probably for years in the church of Jerusalem, functioning as a prophet. And when Agabus said something like a famine, guess what? There was a famine that came. And when he said something else, it happened because he truly was a prophet of God. So when Agabus shows up again, Paul knows this is the Lord's will. And guess what Agabus does? He provides Paul with what he didn't know back in Ephesus. I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. I just know that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, (laughs) imprisonments and afflictions await me. Guess what? Agabus has just revealed the word of God to him. Here's what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. Just so you know, my beloved Paul, says the Lord God, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. If we were to finish, of course, this chapter, you can just scan down to verses 30 through 33 and you will read about the fulfillment of what was prophesied. It did, in fact, come to pass. Paul was captured by the Jews in Jerusalem and then not too long after that, after a little bit of beating, suffering some beating from them, he is turned over or he is apprehended by the Roman forces there in Jerusalem. So what happened to these prophets, brothers and sisters? We stop and say, what happened to these prophets? Well, remember how Paul linked them to the apostles and he described both of them as what? Foundation of the church. They are the foundation of the church. I think we can say that just as the foundational office of apostle did not continue beyond the early church, there's good evidence from Scripture and there's great evidence from the church history that, that position did not continue, especially when you understand that true apostles needed to see the risen Lord Jesus. They were eyewitness, right? They, they testified, I gave eyewitness testimony of Jesus. They did not continue in the same way, neither did the office of the prophet. So, that means that we lack this kind of guidance today? That we don't have what the early church had? We don't have the same resources? No, it does not mean that. And here's why. Number one, God has preserved a faithful record 
of apostolic and prophetic guidance for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. They didn't have that then, right? They may have had scattered books, letters written to people, but they were not completed. The New Testament was not completed. It was not collected by this point. So God provided lovingly with the kind of guidance and help that they needed in the early church. And those, those, that all of that was preserved for us in Scripture. And so we have that same guidance today. And number two, we still possess the very same spirit that they possessed. And he continues to work in us and among us today. We're not lacking. We're not lacking compared to them. God has always provided for His people. That is why it is so important that we take away from this story two incredibly important lessons. You may be asking yourself that. What am I taking? Okay, Pastor Bryce, you just checked off prophets. They're not, like, them and apostles are no longer even here. So what are we doing with any of this, this whole story? Here's two takeaway lessons. Number one, take a look. In light of God's Word and the Spirit's promptings in His people, we must be regularly asking, do I want my way or the Lord's will? Do I want my way or the Lord's will? It is very tempting, and I speak from personal experience, and I speak from decades in the church among the people of God. Lots of anecdotal stories I could share with you. And you probably have some that you could share with me. It is very tempting to hear a verse or a Bible story or feel an inner impression or interpret someone else's words or interpret a set of uh, a circumstance or a set of circumstances. Then make it fit with what you wanted all along. Very easy for us to do that. This must be what God wants, right? These circumstances could never have worked out this way. And I always think to myself, yeah, I guess the devil could have never done anything like that. He's just not smart enough. Right? Somebody's in the church thriving, serving Christ passionately. Work says, oh, there's a promotion. We're going to pay you double in this city far away from here where you know no one. And a quick church search shows it's very little in terms of church ministry. And you think, well, the Lord opened up a door for me. I've got a promotion in this city far away. It has to be the will of God, right? Oh, does it? Does it? And then the rest of us are kind of cajoled into saying, oh, yeah, it must be. Because we don't want to like throw water on the person who said, well, can't you see God at work here? He's, he's opened this door. It's a miracle. I would never have gotten this job. You see, we, we, we often want to fit things together. We want to interpret things and put the pieces in a certain way and say, oh, this must be the will of the Lord. For Paul's companions here, this kind of thinking, them seeing what they wanted to see here, it came from a good place. It came from their love of Paul. And sometimes for us, when we're tempted to do this very thing, it is love that motivates us. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just selfishness. 
Sometimes it's just fear. Sometimes it's just anxiety for us to read it the way we want to read it. In the end, we must arrive where these disciples arrived in verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, what? Let the will of the Lord be done. What is that? It's a heart of sincere surrender. How should you check yourself in those times? You should stop and say, do I have a heart of sincere surrender? Where I am genuinely open to whatever God wants for my life. I am genuinely open to what God... Do I have my preferences? Of course. But I am ready if God is to make it clear this is the way to go. I am wholeheartedly there. I am ready to go. Sincere surrender. Do you, brother, sister, friend, do you accept that the will of the Lord often involves pain loss and uncertainty you okay with that pain loss and uncertainty paul's friends were struggling with those very things in regard to their brother's future weren't they they did not want to lose paul they did not want to suffer that pain They did not want the uncertainty of knowing what his end would be if he was captured. They didn't want any of that. And so they said, ah, the prophet's given us an out here. He's told us this. That means you've got a heads up, Paul. Get it. Let's get out of here right now. They struggled. His friends did. And so do we. And we will continue to struggle, brothers and sisters, in this way. That's why number two, take a look. We must be supremely committed to the call of Christ on our own lives. We must be supremely committed to the call of Christ on our lives. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, take a look, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. How can we truly test the way a verse is stirring us when we read it? Or the counsel of a brother or sister in Christ? How do we test that? Or how do we test what seems to be a very fortuitous open door in front of us? We can ask this. Does this line up with what Scripture tells me about the call of Jesus Christ in my life? Does this line up with that? Or does this hinder me or lead me away from His call? Pretty simple tests. Paul could answer those questions. He had tested the Spirit's leading and the appeals of his friends against the revelation of Jesus in his life. He understood the incomparable worth and work of the gospel, and the genuine cost involved in following Christ. He treasured Christ. He treasured the gospel. He understood that it was a hard road. He told people over and over, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So when he heard them say, it's time to go, let's get out of here, a little flag went up in his mind. Mm. Mm. No, 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 no. Something's off here. 
And it was conflicting with the spirits leading in him, right? What the spirit had been telling him about going to Jerusalem. Something was wrong here. And the wor- it was the word of God, wasn't it? It was the word of God that brought it together. The word of God through the prophet confirmed what Paul, where Paul had been going. And it confirmed that what he was hearing from them was not right, even though he was emotionally broken over it. Can you imagine the temptation? They're pleading with him, please don't go, don't go. Right? He's probably crying, thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is, this is the will of God for me. That I be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. His word-informed trajectory, his word-informed resolve were powerful filters for testing between those two categories, my way and the will of the Lord. Let it be so with us, brothers and sisters. Be so absolutely committed to the call of Christ in your life, to being a person who represents Jesus, right? To one who makes disciples, who speaks the truth in love. Be so committed to that that you are able to filter out the stuff that's just (laughs) right away. No, 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 no. That doesn't square. That doesn't square. Word of God helps me understand that. Are you equipped in this same way? Do you understand the call of Christ on your life? Brothers and sisters, God still speaks and the Spirit still inspires. Do you believe that? Yeah? God's Word still speaks and the Spirit still inspires. But at the same time, the, the human heart still struggles with getting its own way. So we're living in the same dynamics, aren't we? The Word of God and the Spirit and our own hearts, we're living in those same dynamics. One thing that's perfectly clear from Paul here is that he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus, just as Jesus had laid down his life for Paul. Just as Jesus had laid down his life for his flock. Here's our prayer. May God, through his spirit, grant us that same heart, but especially the heart, the willingness to die daily. That is, daily surrender to God's will. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. Pray with me if you would.